He's saying to his church, good morning, happy Easter. I'm so glad that you're hanging out with us. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Yeah, we need some hope today. We need hope in this season. And Easter is the most hope-inspiring, hope-giving, joy-reestablishing moment for some of us. Easter for me, and actually this whole series that we're doing, reminds me of how my kids react when we go to Canada's Wonderland. Now, some of you who live in the rest of Canada or live in the States or the UK or Australia or wherever you're listening from have no clue what I'm talking about. So there's this amusement park in North Toronto that we in Toronto decided to call Canada's Wonderland because we're so arrogant we believe Toronto is Canada, so we represent everything. Anyway, side note. But we have this big amusement park and it's got all these roller coasters and it's a pretty fun place to go. And when I tell my kids we're gonna go to Canada's Wonderland, they all have the same reaction. They're like, this is gonna be amazing. I can't wait to go there. We're gonna eat all this pizza and funnel cakes and we're gonna spend all this money. I'm like, it's my money. They're like, yes, it's even better. And then we're gonna go and do all these rides. So we get in the car, they're excited. We're driving there, they're getting more excited. And then since some of you have been there, you know that you can see it quite far away because some of the rides are quite large and so they even get more excited. So we get into the parking lot and I have to give like one of my lungs just to afford going into the parking lot, it's great. Then we pay, which is a mortgage payment, just to go into the theme park. They love it. And then we arrive at the very first large roller coaster. And my three children have three very different reactions when it comes to the big roller coaster. One of my children is like, this is amazing. I cannot wait to hang over the edge and almost experience death. I can't wait to black out. This is going to be the most amazing thing that has ever happened in my life. Let's go right now. Another one of my kids will go, I'm here. I'm excited, sort of. I have concerns. I want to do this, but I don't want to do this, but I do. And you brought me here and I wanted to come, so I just have some questions and I'm gonna ask you 14 questions about the danger of this as we wait three and a half hours in this line to experience 90 seconds. But I'll do it, I think. My third child is gonna go, you are the worst parent on earth. You've brought me to my own death. Why, do I? Do I even know you? Why would you do this? I'm gonna die. I can't stand roller coasters. It was your idea to bring me here. I need to leave right now. Get me out of this line. I just, I can't handle it. That is very much like the experience of so many of us when we approach Easter, but also when we approach faith and this whole series. And by the way, if you're joining us for the first time, of course you're most welcome. And we're in the middle of a series that actually extends over Easter, but includes Easter, that no matter who you are and where you're coming from, you're going to be able to enter in. But you're probably one of those three experiences I've just outlined. See, this whole series is meant to help, no matter who you are, all of us, journey well, walk well, no matter where you might have been, where you might be going, or what you're thinking about in relationship to faith. Now, as we've been discovering over the last two plus weeks, to journey well, we need signposts, we need markers, because the journey matters, yes. How we do, do the journey matters, yes. And so does the destination. And we've been trying to wrestle down <coughs> four major ideas, unbelief, skepticism, doubt, deconstruction, and then I'll say like later, and people that are just fine with it all. Here's what one person said. Unbelief is the decision not to have faith in God. It's an act of the will. It's not a difficulty of understanding. And skepticism is the decision to doubt everything deliberately as a matter of principle. And doubt means you ask questions or voice uncertainties from the standpoint of faith. 
Oh, you believe, but you've got difficulties with faith. You're worried about it in some way. Faith and doubt aren't mutually exclusive, but faith and unbelief are. And then there's this word that's actually quite an old word, but it's become very popular in the last two years called deconstruction. And it sort of blurs the lines of the first three. And here's how one person again outlined it. We've discovered this the last two weeks. For some, deconstruction means I lose my faith altogether. Atheist, agnostic, spiritual, but not religious anymore. For others, deconstruction means I believe in Jesus, but I'm really struggling with how religious institutions have failed. For many others, deconstruction means, no, I've got a very strong commitment to an orthodox Christian view. I've got a real robust commitment to church, but I don't want all the cultural, political baggage associated with the word evangelical right now. So you've got unbelief, maybe that's you, or skepticism, maybe that's you, or doubt, that's most of us, and deconstruction, that's some of us. And then there's others listening to me today on this Easter Sunday, and you're like, I'm fine, I'm full of hope, I'm all in, I've got joy, I'm convinced, this is amazing. Just like my three kids, this is epic, I've got questions, I need to run. So, as you continue to walk, or as, as you try to find your way back, or if you're considering leaving, or you're trying to discover this for the first time, we all need good directions, good signposts to do this journey well. And what I love is that the Easter story is full of all of these experiences and these thoughts and, the, and, and these ideas, and Jesus walks into every single one of them. Now, if you read the Easter story closely, there is at least three types of people all grappling with life and the loss of hope. And then amazingly, hope returns in the strongest of ways to all of them. You've got a woman named Mary Magdalene, full of grief and loss. You've got the disciples fearing for their life. They're actually in a self-imposed lockdown. They're trying to control what's next because they think they're going to get killed. Then there's one specifically named Thomas who's not just doubting, but because of broken expectations, he's moved from sort of like a suspicion and skepticism to outright unbelief. And by the way, Jesus changes every single one of them. Now, we're going to get to Thomas in about two weeks from now. But today, as we start Easter, as we celebrate with hundreds of millions of people globally around the world about Jesus' resurrection, let's enter the Easter story, not on Sunday. Let's just go back to Good Friday for a moment. Jesus is dead. It says in John 19, 38, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, a man who had earlier had visited Jesus at night. And by the way, is also a world-renowned thinker and leader himself. Now, to get Jesus' body off the cross would be bloody and difficult. They'd have to flex his arms in order to deal with rigor mortis. The condition would have been strong. The temperature had dropped by this moment, of course. The terrible physical exertion just before Jesus died. And so they would have to move his arms from the V position, bring them down. They'd wash his body and they anoint him with oil. This is how it reads in verse 39. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, 75 pounds worth, by the way. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and in strips of linen. This is in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Now, this is unbelievably important, especially if you're just checking out faith. I want you to focus in on 75 pounds of spice. That's a lot of weight. Mixed in linens 
and they wrap his body tightly. Now, here's what one historian really helps us understand. The burial practices of the Jews are quite distinct. Egyptians, we all know, embalmed the dead. Romans and Greeks tended to cremate their dead. But in Israel, something else was done. Rather than, uh, rather, the dead were wrapped in linen, swaddling cloths containing dry spices and were placed on their backs without a coffin in a tomb. They were not completely wrapped. This is important. The dead were wrapped, but their face and the neck and the upper part of their shoulders were left bare. Typically, bodies were wrapped with their arms folded and across, like, uh, across their torso. The head was wrapped separately with a cloth uh, twirled around. Think about like a turban. And of course, they'd also have this little neck, uh, sort of this chin guard that would hold the chin up. The grave cloths never covered the face. Now, this is so important. Don't forget this because this is going to explain John's reaction when he walks into the empty tomb. And for some of you that are unbelieving or skeptical, this begins to paint the picture why this might not be a fairy tale and might not just be made up. Well, it says in verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, there was a new tomb, which no one had ever been laid in. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby, Jesus was laid there. So Jesus' body is placed in a carved tomb or a cave made out of limestone. Now, they would have left his body to keep decompose on a burial shelf. And then the Jewish tradition is family and friends would come back much later. They'd gather the bones and put them in what they call the bone box, like a mini casket. Okay. Now, if you read all the gospel accounts on Sunday morning, Easter Sunday morning, four women come to the tomb. Now, John focuses just on one of them, Mary Magdalene. Now, if she was here today, she would tell you in some fashion, some way, that she'd lived two very different lives. Only two and a half years earlier, she would say something like this. I never went a day where I didn't feel okay. I was wrong. I felt evil, darkness. There was voices within me, and they weren't psychological, and they were more than situational, and their root wasn't mental illness. It was evil, non-human, terrifying. It was demonic. And then this Jesus guy walks into my life, and with a command, seven wicked things leave, and I've never been the same since. Mary Magdalene becomes one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, supports his ministry. She, it's inferred, is quite wealthy. Either she had family money or she was a very successful businesswoman. We don't know. But what she would say is that the Savior, this amazing, merciful leader, this grace-filled teacher, walked into her life, changed the trajectory of her life, and she started to think, maybe he's more than a teacher. I mean, maybe he's the promised Messiah, the Son of God. I mean, maybe he's the hope of everything we wanted as Jews. And then suddenly, shockingly, to her unexpectedly, he was forcibly killed. And all her hope died with him. So it's Easter Sunday morning. There's a knock at the door. Mary Magdalene and other women gather. Those who had followed Jesus, cared for Jesus, had actually stayed at his death. So they go to sort of do one last act of respect. It reads like this in John 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, it's still dark. Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now... The stone would have weighed somewhere between two and 4,000 pounds. And if you read all the accounts, guards had been placed there because people were afraid because of Jesus' reputation, someone's going to try to steal the body. So they actually sent 
guards, and these guards aren't mall cops, by the way. They're trained soldiers. They're sort of the special forces of the day. And the tomb had a seal. And if you broke that seal, you could be executed for that. So they arrive. The stone is moved. All the guards, the special, they're gone, and the seal is broken. Everything feels wrong, actually worse if it could in this moment. Years ago, I love this. I bring this up almost every Easter. Chuck Swindoll got it right. He said, this is how you translate this. Imagine you just lost your spouse, your friend, or one of your children last week. All the pain, all the trauma, all the loss, and you decide that you're going to go back and you're going to reflect, you're going to lay some flowers, and when you arrive at the graveside, there's a huge hole, it's dug up, the coffin is lying open, there's a hole, the body is missing. I mean, how would you react to that? I mean, that's exactly what Mary Magdalene faces. So it says in verse 2, she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, that's John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've placed him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I just want you to pause. This is really important. We're going to hear the word saw or look multiple times in this passage. And in Greek, the original language, language that this is written in, there are six different verbs or meanings for I look or I saw. And they help us journey right. It says in verse 5, John bent over and looked, there's the first one, at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Now, looked here just means plain looking. He saw, he does not understand, but he did not go in. Then there's Peter, and if you've got church background, you know Peter, bull in a china shop, runs right by him, right into the tomb. Peter came along behind him, went straight in the tomb, and he saw the strips of of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, and the cloth was lying in its place, separated from the linens. Now, saw here is different. It means I'm discerning, I'm considering something's up here. And the word he saw them there, there is the where, where we get our modern word theater from. So Peter is taking a long, good, careful look. He's investigating. The mystery has to be probed. Something's going on here that's off. Is this fake? Is this real? I need to find out. Now, I want you to think about this. This is important. If someone had taken the body, then all the linens would be gone. They would just pick him up and remove him. Or if they wanted to desecrate this and make it really bad, they would have unwrapped his body, taken it out, and all the linens and all the 75 pounds of spice and the head covering and the chin, it would just be thrown around. But see, here's the wild, scary, interesting thing. The 75 pounds of spice in the linens are in their proper place, unmoved. And the head covering is unmoved. See, something much more is going on here. So Peter's looking. John finally walks in. And it says, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw, oh, 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 and then he believed. Now, the word saw in Greek here now means it clicked he believed he got it. Now, what did John believe? That Jesus, his body was stolen? That this is some big trick? No, no, no. He believed in resurrection. John was the first in the world to believe Jesus was physically alive again. The linens not moved. The headpiece not moved. The spices all in their place. Everything. It's just like his body evaporated. By the way, 
This is one very important piece of history. If you, again, think this is all fairy tale or invention, you need to wrestle this down. See, you might not know this, but neither Peter or John expected Jesus to come back from the dead. Nor did they believe that Jesus would be resurrected. Why? Well, because the Jews at this moment in history are the only people on earth to believe in physical resurrection. No other faith did. And deeper than that, the Jews had been taught their whole life that the resurrection would happen at the end of time and everyone would be raised from the dead at the same time. There was never teaching that just one comes back. So I just want to say this to you. These people are not dumb. They're not gullible. They're not simple, ancient people. Just because they don't have an iPhone doesn't mean they're stupid. They actually really understand something's going on here. And John, seeing what's in front of him, suddenly gets it. Jesus is risen. He's really risen. He's physically alive. The only reason why the stone is gone is because Jesus is gone. So John says yes. Peter doesn't understand, and he says, I don't understand, maybe. And then there's Mary. Peter and John leave, and Mary comes back, and it says in verse 11, now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and, and she's alone, she's weeping, she's sobbing, she's wailing from the inner part of her. This is that traditional Eastern death wail from the depths of her broken heart. And as she wept, she bent over, and she looked in the tomb. And she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, one at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? Oh, they've, they've taken my Lord away, and I, I don't know where they've put him. As I've preached in Easter's before, it's brilliant. It's like the angels are like, Mary, just, just turn around. Just, just, just do this. He's, he's right behind you. See, at that moment, Suddenly, someone else shows up at the tomb. Oh, and asks the same question again. Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Well, she thought it was the gardener. Sir, if you've carried Jesus away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Oh, and then this is the moment. I mean, this is the moment. Jesus said her name. The same name that called her, the same voice that commanded evil to leave, the same voice that said you are forgiven, it's that voice. Mary. She turned around and cried out, teacher. See, John's the first to believe, but Mary's the first to see. And don't miss this, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later. Mary's not an apostle. Mary's not profound in society. She might have had money, but she had no <coughs> rank or privilege or she had no authority in politics or in philosophy. Like, she wasn't renowned. And of course, in this culture, as a woman, she was lower and not to be trusted. I mean, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is true, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So she turns around and she knows it's him and she runs at him and she doesn't hug him like she bear hugs him. And Jesus' response to her is probably not what we expect. If it was a Hallmark movie, this would be amazing. He'd hug her back and say, isn't this epic? But he, he's not rude. He's not unkind. He, he's not like, why are you so clingy? He's just like, oh, don't hold on to me. I, I've not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I, I am ascending to my father, to, to your father, my God, and your God. See, Jesus' relationship with his followers is going to change. For a reason. Mary, this Mary, and 
Mary, his mother, and the disciples, the physical clinging is going to have to give away to something more significant, faith. Now, notice in what Jesus really says, though, just stop holding on to me. you got to go and tell others this has happened. I'm physically here and alive. You just bear hug me. Deep grief that never could be resolved suddenly is replaced by supernatural great joy. Oh, and I just want to say this as a side note. You can't hug a ghost. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I saw him. I touched him. And guys, it's true. Now, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there are multiple trips, multiple retellings. Some like John say yes. And Mary says yes. And Peter says, I don't know if I went on the roller coaster. And others are like, no, I don't believe, I don't understand. This is scary. I'm going to die. Fear over faith. And again, just for some context, remember, the inner circle of Jesus at this moment thought they were next. I don't think we think about this very often, but the 11 thought they would be rounded up and crucified or stoned to death, just like Jesus was executed. They're terrified that they're going to have the same fate as Jesus. That's why in the very first Easter Sunday morning, there's no shouting, there's no singing, there's no celebration. They're living in chosen lockdown. <laughs> on the evening, not the morning, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. They're being hunted. And then Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Jesus stood among them. Now, I just pause again. The guy they had followed, the guy they gave their jobs for, the guy that taught like no other, the guy that cast out demons with a word, the, the teacher with a look or word healed people, the rabbi that tens and tens of thousands of people listened to, the one that they laughed with and ate with, and the one they saw cast out legion and take some fish and bread and feed, well, in the end, really, probably over 10,000 people, the one they had confessed as Messiah, the one that they had run away from, the one some of them had denied, the one that they had seen or heard had been tortured in the most inhumane ways, the one that was executed by crucifixion, the one that they had lo lost, all hoping is physically standing with them just like in the old days. And as I said in previous Easter's before they can scream or speak or hide or run before anything, Jesus says, peace be with you. Just breathe, everyone. It's going to be okay. It's me. You don't need to freak out. You don't need to be fear-based. Fear now, that word peace, by the way, means more than we probably catch. Yes, it means be comforted, but actually peace means shalom. It means wholeness. In Luke, he uses that word to describe salvation. And so in this moment, that now has literally changed history. They themselves are at a crossroad of faith. Trepidation, panic, loss of hope, unbelief, skepticism, doubt, deconstruction. Remember, these were followers or peace. What would they embrace and what would mark them? Again, I love how the Bible does not lie. It doesn't just make everything okay. It, it, it wades into our frailty. And they react like we all would. It reads like this in Luke 24, 38. He said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Why are you all freaking out? We talked about this for three years. I told you this was going to happen. But Jesus knows they're doubting, not just because he can see their body language. He knows their thoughts. He knows the center of us. Jesus says, I know you're doubting. I know you're skeptical. I know you don't believe. It's okay. So look at my hands. Look at my feet. 
It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bone as you see. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He's the same person, but now physically rise from the dead. Now, his whole body had been marked brutally, but the only marks that are now left on his new body, this resurrected body, this changed body is in his wrists and in his feet. All the other marks of murder and torture are gone, but he chooses to keep these ones because these are now signs of victory over sin, death, and the demonic. And then I come to probably my favorite verse in the Easter account, which is so important for this whole series. And well, they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. He asked them, I'm hungry. Anyone got anything to eat? They did not believe because of joy and amazement. Modern translation, this is too good to be true. I know this is happening. I know Jesus is in front of me right now, but I cannot commit myself to reality because I'm so excited and joy, so joyful. I need to stop and evaluate, not embrace this. In other words, all this emotional encounter stuff is dangerous and I just need to get a hold of myself. How interesting and true that the offering of joy and authentic hope and knowing can become the grounding of no faith in people that used to believe or have never believed because of being jaded, over-analytical, or already over-controlling. Facts and experience, of course, is never enough. When it comes to us and God, we need divine help to get it. So Jesus just says, anyone got any food? I'm here to help you, and ghosts don't eat. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. I love this. Can you imagine the moment? Probably shaking, giving him, right, the fish. And he took it and ate it. And I'm sure they're watching him going, is it going to drop out of his body? And it doesn't. Can you hear them talking? He's eating right now. I mean, he's, he, he's eating right now. Oh, oh, by the way, let's just pause again. The resurrection deals with three wrong ideas. And let me just help you as you journey well to get rid of these. Jesus is not resuscitated. Jesus didn't go through this brutal act of torture and sort of survived it. And got, No, no, no. He was dead. This is resurrection. He also is not some cadaver brought back to life with some other spirit, like, like a zombie. This, this is not the you know, Marvel multiverse moment. No, 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 no. This is Jesus. And by the way, you notice this is physical. This is not some Hindu or Buddhistic understanding that he's spiritually risen from the dead and it's, his body doesn't matter. No, no, he's physically back. Jesus is the same guy, physically raised from the dead. And here's the amazing thing. Their lockdown and fear is removed by the presence of Jesus in their fear and in their lockdown. Okay, so for all of us trying to start the journey, or do the journey well, or not get lost on the journey, or keep going on the journey, or to start the journey, or you're considering getting off the journey, here are the next three amazing signposts we are given so we do this thing right. Loss, fear, and history. Loss. If we take time to truly evaluate much of our struggles with faith, with God, with church, Unsure what to do, where to go, has to do with loss. 
And again, not to belabor this, but in the last two and a half years, we have lost so much and we're grieving so much or actually some of us haven't even had the time to start grieving yet. But I just want you to notice on this Easter Sunday morning, as we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, as the global church right now is celebrating at this moment, hundreds of millions of us are celebrating this. I just want you to notice this, that in the environment of greatest loss, death, Jesus meets Mary and she, I love this, he doesn't dismiss her loss, but he actually brings resurrection in the middle of death. Here's a question, especially if you are a follower of Jesus already. Have you asked Jesus not just to comfort you or be with you through all the loss of the last two and a half years as you're trying to work out faith now in this new environment? Have you asked him for resurrection? See, it's comfort important, right? Presence important. Resurrection, very different. Some of you Many of us need to, as we're trying to keep going, or we've stalled, we need to invite this Jesus to walk in now to a lot of our loss and ask for real, tangible resurrection in what has been lost. Would you do that? It will help your journey. Here's the second thing, really important, fear. So many of us are wrapped up in, or I'd say trapped up in our fear, probably more than we have been in a very long time. The last two and a half years have exacerbated and grown fear. Change accelerates and chaos continues. It's still hard to know what tomorrow holds, let alone what the future is going to be. And with all the chaos and confusion and division and uncertainty, fear has become the biggest driver in most of our lives, and it traps us and it prevents us from either journeying well or journeying at all. Many of us just want to sort of lock up ourselves, literally, or escape binge-watching Netflix or, you know, everyone's trying to travel again, which is good, by the way, it's fine, but let me bring this a little closer home. In the last two and a half years, we, of course, properly have been taught to be careful especially of each other because of what we've been facing. But now it has morphed from be careful to that person beside you will kill you or could kill you. Be afraid of everyone. We're like the disciples in this cultural moment, locked up, afraid, and full of fear. Fear cannot be the driving force in your faith journey any longer. So again, if you are a follower of Jesus, would you have the courage to ask or to observe where you've locked yourself up? See, the disciples, just get this, they locked the, the door from the inside. Then Jesus walked through the wall into the room and drained the room of fear. If you're going to keep going in your faith then this Easter Sunday, you need to be reminded that actually faith over fear isn't a bumper sticker. It's true. And I want to speak to you out of God's word. I want to say this over you. I want to say this into your life. First John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. Many of us need to go before God with our fears, good, bad, exaggerated or not, and on this Easter, so we can start 
engaging again, walking with Jesus again, doing community. We need to say resurrected Jesus, living Jesus, drive out fear because you, Jesus, are perfect love. And some of you literally need to invite Jesus into your home, uh, into your lockdown mentality, in, in wherever it is, into the fear you have of others, the divisions. Ask him perfect love, perfect love, perfect love drives out fear. Now, lots of you that are joining us here today, you're like one of my children who got dragged here. And, and you're like, oh, I don't believe. I'm skeptical. I'm unsure. This is fairy tale. This is not history. Well, that's fair. We welcome your skepticism, your questions, your struggles. And, and as we keep going this series, we're going to, again, readdress probably for three weeks, is this intellectually, rationally viable? But I, I just want to focus in for you who are struggling or skeptical on one point that, again, begins to push this towards history beyond fairy tale. This is not how you build a lie in the ancient world. And you probably haven't caught it yet, but I, I need to do this again, I guess, especially for you who are visiting or questioning. It's going to be really hard probably for you to swallow. But in this time and in this culture, you would never use women to be the first-hand witnesses to build the biggest lie in history. This would kill the story before it even got off the ground. I, I just want to read two Jewish religious statements and one political statement by, uh, by Romans that reveal a woman's worth, trustworthiness, and legal standing in both worlds. Uh, this is the first one. The world cannot exist without male and females. Happy is he whose children are male, and woe to him whose children are female. Here's even more. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid to offer. Also, they are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. So if you're a woman, your testimony legally is no better than a robber and a thief. Uh, during this moment, uh, the Roman, one of the a famed Roman historian writing on Julius Caesar, uh, sorry, Caesar Augustus, who was the emperor of the time of Jesus, just shows you again, whereas men and women always sat together, Augustus confined women to the back rows, even in gladiatorial events. No woman at all were allowed to witness athletic contests. Indeed, when audiences clamored at the games for a special boxing match to celebrate his appointment as chief priest, Augustus postponed uh, until early the next morning and issued a proclamation to the effect that it was the chief priest's desire that women should not attend the theater uh, before 10 o'clock. In other words, if you want to build an incredible crazy lie that Jesus came back from the dead with a Jewish background or to a Roman audience, you never use women as the linchpin to your story because they are considered second-class citizens. They are considered weak, unworthy, and not trustworthy, legally and publicly, no better than a robber or a slave. And yet, Mary Magdalene and a group of other women are the linchpin to the story and wildly they're believed. And as we're going to discover in a few weeks, let me just say this again for you to really think this through. Greeks and Romans didn't believe in physical resurrection at all. The Jews were the only ones on earth at this moment that actually taught physical resurrection from the dead. Not zombification, physical resurrection from the dead. But they had been taught 
fundamentally that resurrection happens at the end of time and never just to one person. That's not even there. So here's my question as you start thinking. How would this massive global movement, how would this massive, basically, religious forest fire start when there's no oxygen in the room to light a fire, let alone a spark, but it actually happens? See, historically, this actually might be verifiable and true. So, if you're a Christian here today, happy Easter. Jesus is risen. He's risen from the dead. There's hope. There's power. He's going to come back. Everything is going to be made right. He is involved right now. There's joy. But again, as, as a Christian, if you really want to keep journeying well and, and not get derailed, face down your loss with the risen Jesus this week. Invite him into your fear this week. And thank him for his resurrection. And if you're skeptical or unbelieving, my basic encouragement to you is join us. Keep hanging out with us for the next few weeks, whether in person or online, to really struggle through. Is this rational? Is this intellectual? Can this be historically verified? And if so, could this change everything for you? And the answer is, oh, Oh, yeah, it's going to change your whole world. God, thank you that you didn't let us be alone. Thank you that you walked in. Thank you you sent Jesus. Thank you that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a death we deserve, physically rose from the dead, and now is seated at the right hand of God and is going to make all things right. We celebrate this Easter with joy and hope that loss doesn't have the final say, fear doesn't have the final say, lost expectations don't have the final say, our misunderstandings don't have the final say. Just open our minds and hearts. Help us to manage No, wrong word. Help us to have you overcome and change loss and fear for something much more beautiful, resurrection. And for those with us who are struggling, wondering, not sure, would you begin to open their minds like you did ours and the early disciples, and soon would they encounter you, the risen Jesus. We celebrate with the global church that Jesus is alive. Thank you for this hope today. We pray this in Jesus' name who's alive. We all said, amen. He is risen. He is risen Indeed.